Well, happy second week of Advent, and thank you to all of you who came up here to help uh, decorate and get the, the lift on stage. That was no minor feat, so thank you very much. We are still in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew today. Uh, last week we were in chapter 2 and we looked at the healing in the Christmas story. Now we're going to go back to chapter 1 and look at hope in the Christmas story. One of the things that, that Christians should think about uh, often is the context in which God has placed you. So God has put a church, a, a local church, in a context. And there's some things about that context that will determine how its mission plays out. Now, I'm not, the mission is not going to change, but how that mission plays out could. So, for example, if we take our church and drop us in the middle of China, there are going to be some things about the way that the mission plays out that will change. We will hopefully try our best to learn Chinese. We will try to learn the, the, val- the unique values of that culture and how those unique values might create unique um, hurdles or opposition to the gospel or maybe maybe very unique opportunities for the gospel to come in. That certainly was the case with Paul, who who did seem to consider the context that he was in, probably most famously in Athens, when he he, uh, interacted with their Greek false gods to help point them to this unknown god of the Christian god. So the context that we're in, uh, it affects the way that we go about our mission, it affects our understanding of it, affects how fruitful we might be in it. So I would hope that we would be a people who are examining the context that God has put us in. And you know, I, I'm far from an expert on this, but there are, there are a few things that are easy to see about our context. And one of those is that we are in the middle of this de-churched phenomenon. So there are, you have unchurched, but then you have, you have people who have never been around church or exposed to church, but then you have the de-churched phenomenon. These are people who who used to go to church for some reason, and for some reason they now no longer go to church. So Orlando has the same percentage of practicing evangelicals as Seattle and New York City. But we feel very different because it's an entire different context. Their context are people who have largely never interacted with Christian teaching and Christians and been in the church. Ours is a context where the vast majority of the people have. According to Barna Research, 84% of, of our city used to go to church in some fashion. So the way that we interact with them is going to look different. If we, I think if we lo- lived in a city where 84% of our city uh, were practicing Muslims, we would really want to get to know that culture. We'd want to target that culture. And so the de-churched phenomenon is, is where we're put, and there are very unique wounds and fears and experiences that have contributed to all of these people deciding they don't want to go to church anymore. So as we look at this group of people, it's really interesting to me to observe how Christian they are in many ways. A lot of them, they, they still believe in one God. They talk to God. Many of them would, would talk to Jesus. Uh, many of them will celebrate Christmas and Easter. But one of the main places that I see the de-churched really uh, diverging from Christian doctrine is the idea that Jesus really is the only way, that Jesus is our only hope. They would say, well, there, there can be other ways, there can be other hopes. And, and when, when we begin to say that there are other hopes out there but Jesus, we're fundamentally stripping Jesus of all the Christian doctrine that, that make him fundamentally our only hope. So, what is that thing? I think 
in this passage, we see that Jesus is not only fully human, but Jesus is fully God. And when we strip him of that thing, he's, he no longer provides the hope that, that, that Jesus is here to provide because he's just one of us. And so Matthew, I think he's doing something very intentional here. In the beginning of his gospel, he opens up uh, examining Jesus' claim as Messiah through his humanity. That's the genealogy. And now in, in this passage, he's, he's examining Jesus' claim to Messiah through his divine lineage. And so Matthew, when he uses the word genealogy and the word birth in our passage here, he's using Greek words that have the same root, which make me think right off the bat, he's very clearly trying to say, this Jesus, this Messiah, he is both fully human and fully God at the same time. And so this morning, I, I want to focus more on the divine side. That's, that's what our passage is foc- focusing on. Because in our culture, I don't think a lot of people are doubting that Jesus was a human, fundamentally. What, what people don't grasp or want to argue or interact with at the least is this idea that Jesus is God. And, and by necessity, if he's God, he is the only way. He is the only hope. So... And then at the end, we'll put the humanity and the divinity together. So in this passage, we have two fundamental claims of divinity that Matthew is making about Jesus. And we see these claims first in how it is that Jesus came, and then second, what he was called. So those are the ways we're going to examine this passage, this passage. So first, how he came. Jesus came as a baby born of a virgin. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she, found, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So in this day and age, you think about a Mary somewhere between the age of 13 and 20. I, I think it's going to be closer to 13. Mary and Joseph lived in what we would all consider to be a very small uh, town. They were betrothed, which is more more significant than our engagement, but less binding than an official marriage. But it was binding enough that it would require a divorce to, to legally back out of. A betrothal is basically you have the covenant, but you don't yet have the consummation. And the only two accounts that we have for Jesus' birth is this one in Matthew and then the one in Luke. And they feel very different because they're examining this birth from two very different angles. Matthew here is examining it from Joseph's point of view, whereas Luke is examining it from Mary's point of view. And all, 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 most scholars point out that when you read Luke's account of Jesus' birth, it's really odd because Luke knows Greek so well. His, his Greek is impeccable, yet it reads kind of like Hebrew, like the structure is still Hebrew. And most people agree that's the case because Luke, being the good historian that he is, he went to Mary and Mary's the one who gave Luke the story. She either wrote it down or had it written down or spoke it to Luke. And he, with a hope of keeping it as pure to the original form as possible, he wrote down her Hebrew just literally in Greek. So it retained this Hebrew form. And so you get Luke 2 where you have this, this anticipation and this excitement right off the bat but you come back over here to Matthew and it's not the same emotion. It's a lot more sober. It's a lot more somber because here you have a guy who finds out the woman that he has pledged his life to is pregnant and he knows he's not the father. So it's a very different tone. 
So there are a few ways that, that people have historically interacted with the virgin birth. And I, I'm, I shouldn't say interacted, critiqued and, and even pushed against the virgin birth because much of Christianity's claim that, D, that Jesus was in fact God, is in fact God, comes from this virgin birth. So if you can break apart the virgin birth, people would say we're, we're breaking down the entirety of Christianity. And so you have people say things like, well, back then, they just didn't understand, they didn't have all the science that we have. They didn't understand that, you know, all that was going on, they just came up with the story that the Holy Spirit got her pregnant. Well, they may not have had a lot of 21st century science that we have, but they didn't require 21st century science to know where babies came from. Like, they, they understood what was going on. No science would have changed what's going on there. I've also thought about the fact that that Mary's claim, uh, Mary's claim that this was a virgin birth was, the, was one of the things, if she were to retract, could have gotten Jesus off the hook completely at the crucifixion because he was, he was being murdered because of his claim that he was God and that's all supported by the virgin birth. And I have to imagine that a loving and deeply grieving mother watching their son going to the cross would come out and say, this is all false. It's not a virgin birth. It's really this other guy to save her son, but she doesn't because the virgin birth was true. Another argument for the virgin birth is that Matthew borrowed it from, uh, from ancient pagan myths. And there are other, other page, pagan myths that have virgin births. Robert Jackson and I, about four years ago, we were at the Roman Forum and there was this tour guide who was explaining a lot. He was, he was, he was kind of an expert on everything, but he, uh, he was explaining how Matthew got the story of the virgin birth and Luke from other pagan myths. It's really just, a, just an assimilation of other beliefs and it's not really that special or divine in nature. Well, the problem with that is Matthew he knew about those other virgin birth narratives. And he, he, if he wanted to create something truly unique, if he was making it up himself, he probably wouldn't have gone the virgin birth route. But in our passage, he's saying it didn't, it didn't start here. This goes all the way back to Isaiah 7, the chapter right after Dan read this morning. He said, this has been prophesied. And some, and some of these prophecies predate all these these myths, these pagan myths of a virgin birth in, in other areas. And so he's quoting in verses 22 and the first part of 23, Isaiah chapter 7. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. But this, even going back all the way to Isaiah, this isn't the first time this has been prophesied. You can go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. Right after the fall, Genesis 3, 15, and you can see the beginnings of a prophecy of a virgin birth. So the fall has just happened. God is now speaking to the serpent, and he says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So for thousands of years, people have wondered, why is it that it's going through the woman? Like culturally speaking, back then, the man is the line. Like why is it the woman's offspring? Why is it the woman's line? And what's happening at the very beginning, God is preparing us for a savior who is fully human because he comes from that line, from her line. Yet no father is mentioned because he is also fully divine, fully God. So this, this narrative of the prophecy narrative of virgin birth, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. It predates all these pagan, uh, these pagan ideas. 
And I have to imagine, you know, we have an enemy who was aware of this and, and he, he would be motivated to create whatever confusion he could in, in this area. Uh, a few years ago, I was driving down the road. It was a Christmas time. And one of my boys said, Dad, who do you think hates Christmas the most? And immediately that boy said, the Grinch, right? The Grinch. And the, my, another boy said, I'm pretty sure it's Scrooge. Scrooge hates Christmas the most. And then my sweet daughter said, I'm pretty sure it's Satan. It's like, yes, you're right. That, that's right. I mean, we have an enemy and it shouldn't surprise us that him knowing this prophecy made to him, your downfall will be through ultimately this virgin birth is going to want to create confusion and chaos around it. So I, I don't know for sure. I, I mean, I, these are, I'm speculating of course, but we can forget in the Christmas story that Matthew, he, he's starting here but he's expecting that we'll stay with him the entire time that he's relaying the story about Jesus. And we know where he's going. He, he's starting with the virgin birth and on the level of miracles, okay, that, that's significant, but where does he end? Resurrection. <laughs> like Jesus' resurrection and then ours if we believe in Jesus. So, so really, when you look at the, the miracles, I mean, I, I'm, I'm agree. I, it's, it's a miracle, it's truly a miracle, but when you look at all the miracles that Matthew is going to unveil, this is lower on, on the list as a whole. But I want to also not, uh, as I look at those people who minimize the, the virgin birth, I also have to interact with those who extend the virgin birth. Because it, as probably all of you know, we lived in Italy for five years and we have a lot of dear friends who would hold to Roman Catholic teaching that Mary was perpetually a virgin. So it's not only that she, she was a virgin her whole life, but after the birth of Jesus, they believe God God returned her to the true virgin state and she stayed that way forever. But in our passage, we have two phrases that directly contradict that teaching. Matthew says, before they came together. So if there's a before, there's surely an after. Then in verse 25, Matthew says, but Joseph knew, knew her not until she had given birth. We know that Jesus has brothers and sisters. It's documented in in the, in the Gospels and in Acts. There's nothing anywhere in the Bible that anywhere insinuates that Mary remained a virgin after the birth of Jesus, nor is it in any way necessary to add that to the story. It doesn't change anything about what Mary does after the birth of Jesus. All right, returning to our narrative. Mary is pregnant, and what does Joseph do? It seems like he's a good dude. You know, he, he, he knows he needs to divorce her. He says, he says he resolves to do it quietly. He doesn't want to shame her. And until, in verse 20, God intervenes. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is claim of divinity is supported by this virgin birth but we can't before we move on we can't overlook the way that he came wasn't just through a virgin but he came as a baby I mean a a human baby has to be the most helpless and least threatening thing on this earth I mean a human baby can't even walk on its own until well after a year usually yet a giraffe is born and is walking in two minutes I mean a human baby is truly truly helpless I, probably 90% of the hospital visits that I've made 
have been to visit people who have recently had a baby and you and no one has ever said when I walk in that room, fear not, Jim, it's gonna be okay. The, baby, the baby's good, you can come in. You don't have to be afraid of this baby. No one's ever said that because a baby is truly helpless. Paul says that to the Philippians, when Jesus, when he came to the earth, he emptied himself. And people have tried to say that that means that Jesus emptied himself of his divine nature when he came. But that's not at all what Paul's saying. Paul's, the emptying is that Jesus took on, he added humanity to his divinity. And when he added divinity, I mean, added humanity to his divinity, that would bring suffering and pain and humiliation that he never would have had to endure had he only been divine. And because the foundation of Christianity is a Christ who accepted rejection and scorn, then that is going to be to some degree our lot as well if we're going to devote ourselves to him. To follow Christ, it doesn't mean more glory on this earth. Often it's going to mean less glory. Increasingly, as our society changes, it's going to mean less glory. But the more that we sit in any humiliation or shame or persecution that comes from our faith in Jesus Christ, the more we share with him in his sufferings, the more we are conformed into his image, the more we understand his humility. And ultimately, I think the more fruitful we will be as Christians in this life. But none of that embracing of shame and scorn and persecution is possible. Let me me phrase it like this. The degree that we embrace that kind of shame and scorn and persecution is only possible to the degree that we see the way that Jesus took that on himself willingly for us. And I've had people say, all right, Jim, I hear powerless, okay? Like God to baby, big jump, I hear hear powerless. But what scorn is there in being born a baby? Everybody loves a baby. Well, everybody loves a baby, yes, but what type of scorn do you think this baby was going to have to grow up in in a very small town? There would have been murmurs from the earliest years about who his dad really is, about how his crazy mom created a story that God did this. I mean, I would imagine his own cousins probably were saying mean things about him. You go to John chapter 8 and you see that these rumors have followed him all the way into his manhood and into his, into his ministry where the Pharisees look at him and they say, you are doing the works your father did. We were not born of sexual immorality. So you can hear it. Jesus chose to come to us in the most humble of ways, the most approachable of ways. And because he did that, he's able to understand us and intercede for us. He can understand all of our pains. He, can under, he sympathizes with everything that we're going to do, or everything that we're going to go through, yet he can go to God on our behalf because he is fully God, fully God, fully man. And we see this through the virgin birth. The second way that we see Jesus' divinity in this passage is by what he is called. This is really important. He is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Look at verse 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the prophet, again, that he's quoting is Isaiah, and the original context is, is I was going to say a little debated. It's hotly debated. But here's what, what Matthew's doing is clear. 
So in this context, things are bleak. You have Israel, the kingdom has been broken into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom is now allying with Syria. The southern kingdom is led by evil king Ahaz, who cares nothing for Yahweh. Yet this is the person through whom the messianic line was supposed to continue. So in Isaiah's context, you have this feeling that the messianic the whole of the messianic line is at stake here. And what Isaiah is saying in the clearest possible way is that regardless of what you do, King Ahaz, God will bring to completion this line that he has started that will lead to our savior, the Messiah of Israel, the savior of the world. And I can remember being a young Christian and reading this and, and thinking, well, they said it would be called Emmanuel, but he's, the angels tell him, that they, need, that they need to name him Jesus. Like, wh- what happened there? Did the angels not understand Isaiah chapter seven and they messed up and they gave him a new name? Well, later, I realized, no, that the angels didn't mess up. Jesus has lots of names. Even in the context of the prophet Isaiah, he's called King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Wonderful Counselor, Lamb of Judah, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Each of these names communicates something important about Jesus's nature, about his character, and Emmanuel communicates as much as any of these other names. This Jesus will literally be God with us. And if he is literally God with us, then there are four major implications in our life today. Well, the first implication is the clearest. If he is God with us, then he is divine. He is God. I mean, we we can't get around that. Some people have said, well, what that really means is he's God with us in that God has blessed us by giving us this really good person or maybe even a prophet, Jesus. But how does that hold when the same prophet quoting Emmanuel has other names like Everlasting Father? This baby will be called Everlasting Father. This baby will be called uh, Mighty God. There's no way to get around the claim in Matthew and Isaiah that this baby would be divine. Without his divinity, there is no savior. There is no saving. There is no Christmas story. Something else that we often hear is that Jesus, he was a good man, good teachings, and again, maybe even a prophet. But what we need to find out is the historical Jesus. You know, get, get these biblical miracles out and let's, let's get to the historical, the good teacher, Jesus. One of the, the apps that my family loves to watch are these national, the National Geographic app on Disney+. And so now's the time of year where they're beginning to, to t- examine the historical Jesus. And one of my kids was watching something on National Geographic and he said, Dad, I don't think they know the Bible. This is not the same story that that I've heard. I was like, yes, good job, good job. Because they're trying to find a way to create a Jesus devoid of the divine. But what I can't get around, what none of them sufficiently do to me is explain then why is it that Jesus was killed? Because you agree that Jesus was killed, but he wasn't killed for being a good man. He wasn't killed for being a prophet. He was killed because he was making the boldest possible claim. He claimed to be God. That's the claim that got him killed. So we go to examine the historical Jesus. If we're going to do that, we need to also create a whole new narrative to why Jesus was crucified. Unless there be any doubt, I want to read four verses from various parts of the gospel of John that make it really clear what Jesus thought of Jesus. 
Jesus said to him, this is John 14, 9, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John ten thirty three. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. John five eighteen. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We have options to decide who we think Jesus is, but this good historical teacher, prophet, is not one of them. Second implication of Jesus as God with us is that we will never be alone. So what God with us, it's not meaning that God showed up for 33 years and then left, and then we have no more God, and he's, we're waiting for him to come back again. Because he has given us his spirit. We have the spirit of Christ inside of us. You remember the last recorded words that Jesus spoke in Matthew were, and behold, just before the ascension, I, w- I am with you always to the end of the age. No matter how stressful things are, no matter how lonely you are, no matter how scared you are, no matter how bad you've messed up, no matter how frustrated you are, if Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, he will be with us always in every situation, in every scenario. And I feel like every Christmas season, I'll have somebody say, I I hear that, Jim, but I don't feel that. I don't feel like God is with me at all. And if that's you, I want you to know that that's not weird or abnormal. I've had very dry seasons where I didn't feel God. If I'm honest about my dry seasons, I was not seeking God the way that I could have or should have. I was not taking advantage of resources that he has given us to to bring us out of those dry seasons like prayer, like the word, like the fellowship of the saints. And so if that's you today and, and you're, you're feeling like, I don't feel like God is really with me, then please hear me as a brother who's been there ask you, are you really seeking him? Are you seeking him? And, and it could be a dry season. It could be that you don't feel him because you have not ever believed in Jesus Christ. But whether it's a dry season or whether it's that you've never chosen to follow Jesus, the answer is clear. We need to seek him. And if we seek him, There's a promise that he will always be with us, that he will never leave us, no matter what trial that we're going through. And then this leads third, third implication. If Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, it goes, this this goes beyond the trials of life. If we seek God through Jesus, we will be saved. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I want you to think of your biggest problem right now. And whatever it is that pops in your mind, I bet that's actually not your biggest problem. (laughs) Because our biggest problem is our sin. And I'm not even saying our sins. our, Our biggest problem isn't that we make bad decisions. Our biggest problem is that we have this underlying disease that causes us to think we can do this ourselves, that causes us to look at God and say, I can run my life. 
And when we say that, we're really saying, God, I can ruin my life. Our problem is our sin. And this inclination to want to be God in our, our own lives, it comes with an eternal death penalty. But the arrival of Jesus, fully God and fully man, is giving us another way. And when, when, when we think about being saved from our sin, we can think about the baby Jesus coming just to get us off the hook. And Jesus does so much more than that. You know, there's a reason, I think, that, that typically young girls love damsel in distress stories. And, and I know they can be a little offensive. I'm not saying that every woman needs a man to save her. That's, that's not wh- where I'm going. But, but I think what, the, what young women in those stories, what they like about it isn't just that they're getting out, that this woman isn't getting out of a prison or getting away from the dragon. It's not just what they're being saved from. It's, what they're being, it's who they're being saved to. You know, there's never a damsel in distress where an average Joe shows up, opens the gate, and that's the end of the story. The beautiful part of the story is that they lived happily ever after part. And that's a picture of the way that Jesus is saving us, not just from our sin, but to him, happily ever after. And then we get to the fourth implication of Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us we will be with him forever. Remember, we're not just saved from something, we're saved to someone. In all of human history, you know, creation and everything in it has grown, has longed to be with God. And God in his grace, he has given us these little temples along the way. And so a temple, you've probably heard me say this before, is God's meeting place with man. It's not like that's the only place that God exists, his little home. I mean, that's just the place that he has chosen to meet with us. So the tabernacle was a temple. The temple, of course, was a temple. Jesus himself was the meeting place of God and man. So Jesus is a temple. And then now all of us who have the Holy Spirit inside of us, we are all temples. But there will be a day, according to Revelation 21, where the whole universe is God's temple. There is no, no, no limitation to the ways and places that he will meet with us. John says this in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. If Jesus is really divine, if he's really God, then in the words of Tim Keller, it is going to create a crisis in the life of everyone who has to engage with this. Everyone's gonna have to engage with this claim that Jesus has that he is in fact divine. And we see in in the gospel of Matthew, the, the Jews responded typically in one of three ways. They would run, they would fight, or they would bow. The, those are the options. There's no, there's no just being cool with, with some Jesus, who was a good man and a good prophet. You run, you fight, or you bow. Those are the only three options that are left to us in the biblical story. So you have Joseph. He's in a crisis. He's, he's engaged with the divine Jesus, and it creates a real crisis for him. God, of course, intervenes by sending an angel, and he's told, don't worry, marry this woman, because this child is born of the Holy Spirit. So they're getting to his divine nature. And Joseph could run, he could fight, he could try to shame her and scorn her, but instead he bows. 
He bows to God's will for his life, knowing that it is going to bring shame, it's going to bring hardship, it's going to bring persecution, but he bows. And this bowing, you know, there is, there's a first time that we bow, all, all of us. There's a first, if we're believers, there's that one moment that we bow for the very first time, acknowledging Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man, sovereign over our lives, here to save us. But that just sets up bow after bow after bow for the rest of our Christian life because the rest of our Christian life is Jesus saying something and us wanting to run or we want to fight but he's calling us to bow day after day after day that's the Christian life and that's what we celebrate every week when we come to the Lord's Supper we bow and we commit ourselves yet again it starts with that first bow and baptism and it continues every time we decide to follow Jesus in a difficult situation and it continues when we come to the Lord's table and confess him as our truly human and truly divine king. In just a moment after communion, we're gonna sing uh, the Christmas hymn, O Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And so this is a well-known hymn But it was written in 1744 by John Wesley when he was beginning to look at the degree of suffering around him. And I think he was kind of set over the edge looking at the suffering of some of the orphans in his midst. And he had this feeling of, oh, oh, come that long expected Jesus. We need you here. And he wrote the song and he did just an amazing job of talking in the Christmas story, writing about this baby human who is an eternal divine king. He does it in a brilliant way. He writes, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. And so if if Jesus wasn't both human and divine, he could not have gone to the cross for us. He could, if he was, if he's just a person, he could not have remained sinless. He could, his substitution wouldn't be nothing. If he was all divine and no human, then it wouldn't mean anything because he doesn't get what we're going through. He didn't have to be tempted in every way as we are. But because Jesus is both human and divine, he can go to the cross in our stead, give us everything that he merited in his wonderful, perfect life, take all of the punishment that we deserve, and then now he can intercede for us to God because he totally gets us and he totally gets God. So if you take the divine out of Jesus, there is no hope. There is no Christmas story. And so we as Christians, we, we stake our lives on the fact that this is the way that God chose to break into the world. Through a baby, a helpless baby who is both fully human yet fully divine. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that this is the way that you would choose to redeem us. We're thankful that you would even choose to redeem us. And we pray that this truth would, that it would seep deep down inside of us, that we would, that we would know for whom we wait. We don't wait for a mere human. We don't wait for a savior who has never tasted humanity and understands what we're dealing with. We wait for a savior who's both human and divine. And I pray that whatever it is we're going through, that hope that you give us in Jesus Christ would sink deep, that it would stay firm, and it would get us through the trials that we're going to have in this life. 
We love you. We praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.